Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as we dive further into this fancy word pietism, this unique branch of the church from which the evangelical covenant church was born, we are looking at the ways in which pietism takes Reformation themes and employs them creatively. Pietism's founder, Philip Jakob Spener, was reforming against the state church at the time, accusing them of a mere head knowledge of the Christian faith. And instead, he was encouraging Christians of his time towards a heart knowledge. For this reason, pietism is known as a faith movement that engages both the head and the heart and the hands. Head, heart, and hands. I hope the idea of a Christian faith that is being an exercise of head, heart, and hands is not a revelation to you. I hope it's something that you feel here. I hope it's something that's ingrained in who we are and what we do as a church. But yet I still wonder sometimes. When someone says, I believe in Jesus Christ, or I have faith in Jesus Christ, what does that mean? What does that really mean? I think the first thing we go to is, well, they believe that God is real and that Jesus was a real person who, who died and was raised to life. We might think if somebody says, I have faith in Jesus Christ, that they go to church or they pray or that they're interested in spiritual things. But what's the litmus test for us of what it means to actually have faith in Jesus Christ? How do we measure that? If we think of only what we believe, that's a sign of mere head knowledge of faith. On the other hand, if the litmus test is, is what you do, your actions, how much money you give away, how many charitable things you've done, how socially conscious you are, then we can slip into this legalistic do-goodism that leaves us equally empty. In Galatians 2, verse 16, Paul says, And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ not by doing the works of the law, because no one will be justified by the works of the law. So then works don't matter to the Apostle Paul? Which one is it? <laughs> what is the biblical measure of us having faith in Jesus Christ? I think we can find an answer, a very nuanced answer, in the passage that was read for us in Luke chapter 10. I know what you were probably think as, thinking as Luke 10 was, was read for us, because I thought it too as I was looking forward to this morning. I already know the point of this story. I've heard it so many times since I was a little boy. Love God and, and be the good Samaritan. Help those that are in need. Help the unlovely. Love the unlovely. Yes, we know. We learned this in Sunday school. We remember the flannel graph, right? We get it. But you know what I say? You do get it. You've got the gist of what scripture is requiring of you as a follower of Jesus Christ. Just in that song that we sang. What, what is it? to help those who are in need. But it highlights this question of Christian faith, and it points to a faith, I think, of head and heart and hands. So I'd like to look at a few main issues in this text that are often overlooked in a, in a cursory reading, and I'm going to follow a little bit of an outline that breaks the scripture into three main parts. First, the scribe's question about eternal life, and then the power of the parable for the scribe, and then third, 
what's our role as readers. So first, the scribe's initial question. It says, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. To test Jesus. Was the scribe merely testing Jesus' knowledge to determine his competence? Or was he hostile, seeking to trap Jesus in some sort of unorthodox answer? Some suggest that the question asked about eternal life is actually not the real question. It's a setup for the real test, which is the second question about the boundaries of the word neighbor. As we know well from other texts, the law-abiding Jew was generally quite unhappy with Jesus' association with the wrong people, such as another famous Samaritan, the woman at the well who we read about in John chapter 4. Jews like this law-abiding scribe were quite sure that the Messiah, because of his holiness, would avoid any sort of associations with Samaritans. So the question of neighbor is where the scribe knows that he's headed, and the first question about eternal life is the way to get there. The scribe turned then to the law and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? To this heavy question, Jesus answers in kind of a peculiar way. He turns the law back on the scribe, accepting the love command as the answer to the question, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your strength and all your mind. The scribe expected the love the Lord your God answer to be a trap for Jesus. This is the daily prayers for Jews every day. But here Jesus gives new meaning to this commandment by adding a second part of the commandment, which is, and love your neighbor as yourself. The problem is that, that I, and I, I think probably we, we all want Jesus to say things that sort of fit in our systems. Maybe we can relate with the scribe in this sense, but Jesus rarely does. So when asked, how should I inherit eternal life? I would want him to say, have faith and follow me. Or the way that you live your life should look like this. Or get fully involved in your church and your youth group and your children's ministry and never ever miss a Sunday. Right? But of course, he doesn't say any of those things. Instead, he covers the head and the heart and the hand of faith. True faithful followers are those who know and love the God as he is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And then, in turn, choose to live in conformity with his character. It's not a static love, not a love that's easily affirmed in speech or rhetoric, but a love that's put into action. It's not a checklist of deeds as if one can say, I've completed all that I do need to do in order to inherit eternal life. We must love God with every new day and act accordingly to put that love into action. So that's the initial question. The second part of this parable is the, really the power of the parable. In verse 29, it says, the scribe wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? The real power in this passage is the contrast between the two questions, what must I do to receive eternal life, and, and the second, who is my neighbor? So in reply to this, Jesus begins with the parable of the Good Samaritan, seeing a clear chance to answer the question, who is my neighbor, while also explaining what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. So the story goes, a man is ambushed by robbers on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was left for dead. It's safe to assume within the context of the scripture that this man is in fact a Jew who has been beaten. A priest passes by, one of his own people, but he doesn't lend him a hand, perhaps returning to Jericho after worship services in Jerusalem. 
A Levite does the same thing, leaving the man without help. In, in Jewish law, you have to understand that it was considered unclean to touch a corpse or touch anything that even a corpse touches. And this man was so near to death, I think that this couldn't be risked. The priest and the Levite were clearly more concerned with cleanliness laws than they were with mercy and compassion. Then an unlikely source comes to the aid of this helpless man, a Samaritan. It's well documented that Samaritans and Jews had a strenuous relationship at best. They were fraught with racial tensions. They disagreed about religion and land and law and privilege, just to name a few. The Samaritan race had a sordid history and they were considered by Jews to be half-breeds with the ancient Assyrians, racially muddied, inauthentic worshipers who were unclean, renegade outsiders that should be avoided. In fact, the Jews of the second century BC went through a painstaking process of, of building a road on the other side of the Jordan River so that they could completely avoid Samaria when traveling north to south, even though the road was miles out of the way. All this makes it even more amazing that the Samaritan is the one who puts the differences aside and has pity on this Jew. He doesn't just help him. He goes the extra mile, or in this case, probably many miles, giving time and money and health and resources to this man who's in great need. And apparently the scribe understood Jesus' words well because when asked which one of the travelers was the neighbor, the scribe correctly asserts, that it was the one who exhibited mercy. The original trap that was set for Jesus was blown apart by this parable of the Good Samaritan. His question, who is my neighbor? If we think about it, the very question itself implies that he understood there to be limitations on who his neighbor was. And from the standpoint of the law, there were limitations. But mercy trumps law. The expert of the law was convinced that there were boundaries. But what he got in response was a concrete and forceful image that destroyed the notion of any boundaries for mercy and love. Love does not allow limits on the definition of neighbor, mercy, justice, and compassion. They beat out legalities every time. So the end of this passage. What about our role? Jesus says, go and do likewise. As the scribe pondered what it meant to go and do likewise, I think we have to do the same this morning. I found this story to be important to, to many Christians today, a parable with a lot of emotional pull for us, a lot of honest conviction. But why does this story have such a force for, for Christians today? Why do so many of us know it? Why have so many of us heard sermons on it? I think it's because we're invited to ask ourselves, in that same situa situation, what would I then do? What would I do? There is an art of putting ourselves in a story, by the way. It's been interesting to look at how people have read this parable throughout the history of the church. Many, many read it as an allegory, assuming that person A in the parable equals person A in reality. The early church fathers were thoroughly convinced that the Good Samaritan was Jesus, right? And humanity was the one who was left dead on the side of the road. Likewise, evangelicals today are quick to assume that the modern Christian is the, is the good Samaritan and the one left for dead is the unbeliever and we ought to have compassion on them. And while these are feasible 
they're not really helpful in the reading of this text because this isn't actually a parable. Though it is classified as a parable, it's really not a parable. The story of the Good Samaritan actually should be classified as an example story rather than a parable. And the reason we know that is because of Jesus' concluding words, which is, go and do likewise. This is an example for us to enter into. C.S. Lewis was once asked about Paralandra, which was a very celebrated book trilogy uh, called the Space Trilogy, uh, second book of the Space Trilogy. And, and he was asked, how should Christians read this? How should Christians understand this book? The main character, his name is Elwin Ransom. He's, he's really clearly a Christ figure. It's pretty obvious as you read it. So how are we to un understand the allegory of the fall, which is the crux of the entire trilogy? And, and here's how C.S. Lewis responded. Listen to this. You are mistaken when you think that everything in this book represents something in this world. Things do that in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, but I'm not writing in that way. I did not say to myself, let us represent Jesus as he really is in our world by the character of Elwin Ransom. I said, let us suppose that there was a place like Paralandra. What would it look like for Christ to enter that world? You see the difference? Lewis answers why example stories like the Good Samaritan are so powerful for us. It's because it's not a metaphor. It's not an allegory. Just as Lewis vehemently rejected the idea of the Paralandra trilogy as an allegory. Elwin Ransom is not Jesus Christ. He's not hope. He's not the Western Christian. He's Elwin Ransom in a fictitious world. The story stands on its own, and, and we're forced to view that world from the outside. Likewise, I firmly believe that we are not in the story of the Good Samaritan, though we might identify with characters in that story. We're not the one that's left for dead. That's an interesting thought. We're not the Good Samaritan, though he's a great example for us. If anything, we are the scribe. We're the one that's concerned with the law. And Jesus says, go and do likewise, and we have to make our own judgment. There are many biblical scholars who just can't accept that this parable is not an allegory or metaphorical for fear that the result is going to be some sort of radical moralism or legalism. It's easier to, alle uh, to allegorize because it doesn't demand anything of us or it box us into kind of this moralized faith. And I'm the first to say that we do not inherit eternal life from our works. It's grace alone that saves us. But God forbid that morals would be so uninteresting to us when such a huge segment of Jesus' teachings are precisely about how we live to go and do likewise. Jesus did not intend to, tend to be, intend to tell people how to live, then why would we follow him? <laughs> the point of the parable is not legalism, so that in order to be like the Good Samaritan, Christians should be standing on the side of the road at all times waiting to help people. That's not the point here. It's about loving the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all of your mind and loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about loving God so much that it might affect the way that we live our lives, that it might change our head and our heart and our hands so that we might put our love into action, the action of loving our neighbors of whom there is no limit. Doesn't the story kind of scare you in terms of how modern it sounds? I mean, we have an entire culture of people who are so quick to ask how to receive eternal life, but then slow to act in love towards one another. So 
slow to understand mercy and justice and compassion, and most of all, a moral life. Our fear of having to earn our salvation has led to the idea that Christianity is a religion only concerned with what one believes and not what one does, or more importantly, who one is. How shallow and tragic is that? That is surely not true faith in Jesus Christ. To have faith in Christ is to be further transformed by him into his likeness. And of course, when we do that, we're going to put love into action. The priest and the Levite knew compassion and mercy in theory. It was in their heads. But they couldn't put this love into action because it hadn't traveled from their heads to their hearts. I think we all desire life with God, as surely the scribe did in his heart. But that is not life with God itself. Life with God is a relation of love with God that forms completely who we are and reflects that love to other people. Jesus seeks to transform the scribe from a man of mere knowledge to a man of head and hands and heart. So back to the original question. What is the measure of faith in Jesus Christ? What's the litmus test? The early pietists have an answer for that. They were insistent upon faith being made tangible in our love of our neighbor. It's not anything different than what Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, really. Faith in Christ is something that we can know and contemplate and understand, just as the teachers of the law are wont to do, but it's also a matter of the heart and the hands. It's lived out in our love of neighbor. These are natural results of one another. One commandment with two sides. Our heads are focused on Jesus Christ, our hearts are focused on Jesus, and our hands are in use for Jesus. One last thought on faith in Jesus. This is a, this, I, I want to point something out to you. It's a little technical, but hang with me. There's a very interesting movement in, in New Testament studies around the idea of faith in Christ. In the last 30 years or so, it's led mostly by Richard Hayes and a few others. In the, in the biblical Greek grammar, you know your preposition by the case of your verb, okay? For grammar snobs, you'll understand that. I'm going to help you. When, when we read about faith in Jesus Christ in Paul's epistles, having faith in Jesus Christ, we read this as an objective genitive, meaning Jesus is the object of our faith. Therefore, it's faith in the object of Jesus Christ, right? And rightly so. But Hayes and, and others have advocated that it is equally appropriate in, in numerous situations in, in Paul's literature to translate this using a subjective genitive, which we would translate as not faith in Jesus, but faith of Jesus. Let me show you the difference by using the Galatians text that we looked at earlier. So in the objective genitive, which I read earlier, we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ, not by doing the works of the law, because no one will be justified by the works of the law. Here's the subjective genitive. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by the faithfulness of Christ. And not by doing works of the law, because we won't be justified by works of the law. Does that make sense to you? It does to me. It's the faithfulness of Jesus, not our own faithfulness to works, 
that justifies us. But the faithfulness of Jesus to live out his faith with head and heart and hands ought to motivate us to do the same. As my dear Professor Klein Snodgrass would say, faith is not what we believe or say or do. Faith is the glue that binds us to the person of Jesus Christ and his faithfulness and allows us to become more like him. What is faith in Jesus Christ? What does it mean to have faith in Jesus Christ? To know Jesus in your mind and to have him change your heart and to motivate the use of your hands. It's actively looking at the life of Jesus and entering into this story of life, seeking to go and do likewise. It's seeking to be faithful as Jesus was faithful. It's a faith that's lived out in love of neighbor, just as Jesus lived it out in great love for you and for me. Faith is the glue that binds us to the person of Jesus Christ so that we might become more like him.